Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's precious metals news. It's Friday, December 16th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. Boy, keep your eye on the ball. If you've ever played any sport involving a ball, or in my case, a puck, somebody at some point has told you to keep your eye on the ball. You've probably heard it millions of times. You know, if you don't keep your eye on the ball, bad things happen. Well, I think the same applies when it comes to the trajectory of the economy or investing. It's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day gyrations of the market, pronouncements of certain government or central bank officials, or, or you know, the most recent data dump. But I've said this before on the show, you have to keep your focus on the fundamentals, the underlying realities in the economy as you try to parse your way through the news of the day. So obviously, I'm going to talk about the Fed meeting and the CPI since that's the big news of the week. But as I do, I want us all to try to keep our eye on the ball because I am convinced that there are certain inevitabilities we're going to face due to the underlying dynamics. And that's what I want to try to keep honed in on during this discussion. So I guess we'll start with the CPI data that came out on Wednesday because that kind of sets the stage for the Fed meeting. CPI for November was lower than expected. And the consensus was that it was a strong indication that price inflation is cooling off. By the way, I've been trying to figure out how to better communicate about inflation, given the fact that there's kind of two definitions of the word out there now. So I'm going to start saying price inflation when I mean rising prices, and I'll say monetary inflation when I'm talking about the expansion of the money supply. Now, of course, back in the day when people said inflation, they generally meant the expansion of the money supply. But the powers that be have successfully changed that definition to mean price inflation. So there's really no way to describe monetary inflation because when people say inflation, they just think rising prices, which really is a result of monetary inflation. So I'm just going to distinguish between the two, and hopefully that will make communication a little bit more clear because I think it's really important, and I've talked about this before, we got to get definitions right. If we don't get definitions right, if we don't have a common vocabulary, it's really hard for us to communicate about anything. So anyway, I'll link to an article in the show notes page that kind of goes deeper into the definition of inflation and how it's changed if you're interested in such things. So anyway, back to CPI. Uh, We got a modest rise in CPI of 0.1% month on month. The consensus was for a 0.3% increase. On an annual basis, CPI was up 7.1%, and that was below the 7.3% expectation. Now, 7.1 sounds better since we've been in the eights for so long, but, you know, To put that number in perspective, CPI in November 2021, so a year ago, was up 6.8%. So it was actually lower a year ago than it is now. And it means that over the last two years, CPI has risen 13.9%. You're feeling that in your pocketbook, in your wallet every single day. Looking at core CPI, which strips out the more volatile food and energy prices, and again, I say this all the time 
kind of in jest, but I wish we could strip out, you know, food and energy prices uh, and, and just pretend like they don't exist like core CPI does. But anyway, they like the core CPI because they claim that, you know, it's a, it's a more stable measure, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, core CPI is not what you're dealing with. Uh, at any rate, it rose 0.2% on the month, so a little bit hotter on the core. Year-on-year, uh, year, core CPI is up 6%. So both of those numbers were also lower than expected. Uh, I'll link to an article in the show notes page that digs a little deeper into the numbers, and you can kind of see where uh, we've had increasing uh, prices, which kind of in the realm of shelter and food and where things have cooled off a bit. But the bottom line is you can take that headline number and say, yeah, price inflation is cooling. And if you look at a graph over the last several months, you'll see that uh, CPI is gradually coming down. In fact, one analyst on CNBC went as far as to stay, uh, as far as to say, quote, stick a fork in it. Inflation is done. Now, I think the celebration is a little premature. I mean, you don't have to be a PhD in math to know that 7.1 is a lot bigger than 2. 2% is supposed to be the target, right? That's what the Fed keeps saying they're shooting for. We're a long way from 2. Uh, and meanwhile, producer prices rose more than expected in November, and that's kind of a leading indicator. That means there could be more consumer price increases in the pipeline if businesses pass those rising costs at the producer side onto their customers. So, you know, saying inflation is done is clearly premature. Nevertheless, the market seems to believe that the war on inflation is nearing an end, and that really is kind of the, the the key to what we're seeing going on in the markets. And of course, after the CPI data came out cooler than expected, stocks kind of sold off because they're thinking, oh no, you know, the Fed's gonna have to Fed's gonna have to go after it. The Fed's gonna keep tightening. It's the same song and dance that we've been seeing in the markets for months and months. But um the central bank seems to have a different view on whether the war on inflation is ending. The central bank begs to differ, to differ in fact. Um, regardless, I think it's reasonable to think that CPI is going to continue to cool somewhat uh, in the coming months. I mean, first off, math works in its favor. We have these big month-on-month increases from last year that are starting to roll out of the annual average. So that pushes the yearly increase lower. Meanwhile, the economy is slowing. I mean, make no mistake, high interest rates are subduing economic activity. We see this very clearly in the housing market, but we've also had some you know, manufacturing data, uh, retail sales. Uh, we'll get into some of that here in, in a minute. But you know, the bottom line is an economy that is built on easy money and credit can't function in this high interest rate environment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the ball. That's what I want you to keep your eye on. Remember that an economy that is built on easy money and credit cannot function in this high interest rate environment. That, I think, is the key to everything as we look ahead. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the Fed meeting. 
And and really, that was the news of the week that drove markets. Everybody's been talking about it. You know, it's it's kind of the end of the year. What's the Fed going to do? Well, as expected, the FOMC raised interest rates by 50 basis points. Now, of course, this is the first time since May that they've gone smaller than 75 basis points. So you could call this a soft pivot, given that they are slowing down rate hikes. On the other hand, you can also argue that half a percent is a pretty hefty rate hike, especially given all of the hiking that they've already done. Wednesday's move pushed the federal funds rate to 4.5%, so technically between 425 and 4.5%. The last time rates were this high was in 2007. Now, watch the ball, because that's bad news for an economy addicted to easy money. So while the pace of rate hikes slowed, we went from a 75 basis point hike to a 50 basis point hike, the messaging coming out of the Fed was substantially the same as the November meeting. In fact, the official FOMC statement was nearly identical to the November statement. The committee only made some slight changes in the verbiage describing the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war on the global economy, and that verbiage change wasn't even really significant in terms of of meaning. The messaging relating to the future trajectory of monetary policy was totally unchanged. So the same as the November statement. Uh, It said that the committee, quote, anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. It also said the committee will continue to take into account cumulative tightening and the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation as it makes its future decisions. Now, as I talked about after the November meeting, those phrases about the effects of cumulative tightening and the lags, these give the Fed some wiggle room to slow or even stop raising rates as they, quote, take things into account. So, you know, they could go into the uh, next meeting, which I think is February 1st of next year, and they could say, you know, uh, we need to do a little evaluating. So we're going to put a put a little pause in here to uh, evaluate the lags and the cumulative effects. So it gives them room for a pivot. It creates a plausible escape route, and quite frankly, I think they're going to need it. Now, also in a deja vu from the November meeting, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell sounded a hawkish tone. In fact, it was almost a replay of that November press conference. He said, we have more work to do. And he emphasized that rates would move higher and stay longer than initially anticipated. So he's signaling to the markets, hey, this isn't over yet. We're still going to raise rates more. We're going to go higher than we originally thought, and we're going to stay there longer. He said, quote, my view and my colleagues' view is that this will take some time. We have a long ways to go to get back to price stability. Powell also dismissed the notion that central uh, that the central bank might cut rates next year. Now, that's significant because a lot of people in the markets were betting that the Fed is is going to reverse course and cut rates next year. And Powell's trying to say, no, this isn't going to happen. Now, I think the markets are probably right, but we'll get to that here in a sec. Uh, Powell claimed that the Fed is now push or has now pushed interest rates into restrictive territory. Now, i got to be honest, I find that a little bit curious. 
I mean, what, what's he basing this on? With CPI still over 7%, that means real interest rates are still negative by at least 2.5%. That's not restrictive monetary policy. In fact, it's accommodative monetary policy. Now, yes, the Fed has tightened significantly, and we're seeing the impacts of that, but it's still behind the inflation curve, right? In effect, it's just slowed the flow of gasoline onto the inflationary fire, but it's still pouring gasoline onto the inflationary fire. So think about what that means, right? Now, here's the part that's a real head-scratcher to me. In fact, I think it's kind of an off-speed pitch to try to get our focus off the ball, to strain my keep-your-eye-on-the-ball analogy a little bit. Powell said there is still hope for a soft landing. In other words, he's claiming that the Fed can defeat inflation get it down to 2%, take interest rates higher and leave them there for longer without tipping the economy into a recession. Now, I think he's nuts. I think we're already in a recession. The data tells me we're in a recession. I alluded to this just a minute ago. We got more manufacturing data on Thursday that screams recession. Retail sales were down. That screams recession. And two months of negative GDP earlier this year screams recession. Yeah, I know we got growth in Q3, but all of that growth is accounted for by a narrowing trade deficit. That was temporary. It was caused by a strong dollar and the U.S. uh, US exporting a bunch of oil from the strategic reserves. The dollar is getting weaker, And that means the trade deficit is going to expand. As the dollar weakens, it makes imports more expensive. So we're going to get a bigger trade deficit. So that will drag down GDP. In fact, the trade deficit has already widened over the last two months. So as I said, I think we're in a recession. And if we're not in a recession, we're going to be. But Powell said he doesn't know the trajectory of the economy. Quote, I don't think anyone knows whether we're going to have a recession or not. And if we do, whether it's going to be a deep one or not, it's not knowable, he said. Well, Jerome, I beg to differ. I know it. I think it is a virtual certainty that the economy will spiral into a downturn. And I don't think it will be short and shallow. I think it will be deep and prolonged. And honestly, I think Powell knows it too. He just doesn't want to say it out loud. I mean, he may think it won't be as bad of a downturn as it may be, but he has to know that it's in the cards, right? Now, here's where we put our eyes right on the center of the ball. Why am I convinced the economy is going to tank? Because the U.S. economy is addicted to easy money. It is addicted to artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. You can't take an addict's drug away without sending him into withdrawals. Think about it. As I said earlier, interest rates haven't been this high since 2007. What was going on in 2007? Well, the Fed was already cutting rates due to the housing bust. The economy couldn't handle interest rates as high as they were at the time. And they were already cutting rates. Rates actually peaked at 5.25% in 2006. So this is after the dot-com bubble busted and they went to low interest rates in order to stimulate the economy and to deal with the recession. And he had the uh, the uh, um, 
And so there was a little recession, and the Fed was stimulating, and then they started to raise rates, which is what they do. And rates peaked at, at 5.25% in 06. That high interest rate precipitated the housing bust and ultimately the financial crisis in 2008. So the easy money after the dot-com bubble burst blew up the housing bubble, and then the Fed brought rates higher, and it popped the housing bubble, and that led to the Great Recession. Now, today, the Fed has pushed rates within 1% of the level that pricked the housing bubble. But there's a major difference between then and now. The bubbles are bigger today than they were then. There is more debt in the economy than there was then. There is more malinvestment in the economy than there was then. If the extent of a bust is commiserate or commensurate with the extent of a boom, ladies and gentlemen, we're in for a doozy. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, and I, I get this a lot because I will admit I'm basically a perma bear. I'm a perma bear because I think that the way that the economy is run. And in the first place, I don't think an economy should be run. An economy should be free market. But the way the powers that be run the economy make a bust inevitable, right? So that's why I'm a perma bear. But, you know, there's also booms, and, and the booms look good, and people enjoy the booms, and you can make a lot of money in the booms if you know when to get in and out. So, you know, being a perma bear isn't necessarily the best mindset to have if you're thinking purely in terms of investment. And when you're thinking investment, you want to play the booms and the busts to maximize uh, your own investment portfolio. But from a just an economist standpoint, I'm a perma bear. And my buddy was asking me, you know, well, well Mike, you know, you're, you keep talking about this crash and we haven't seen a crash. And he said, it surprises him how the Fed and the government can keep the plate spinning as long as they have. I mean, you would think, given all of the quantitative easing and all the garbage that they did to the economy during the pandemic, you would think that we would have seen the crash before now. You know, it, it would be obvious. You can look at the data and it hints at it, but he said, you know, it should be obvious. We should have had the crash by now. And I see where he's coming from. You know, when you hear somebody like me or Peter Schiff or, or other people who are really negative on the economy keep saying there's going to be a crash, there's going to be a crash, and you don't have a crash, and you wonder, well, why isn't there a crash? But as I was looking back at the lead up to the Great Recession, it occurred to me that, you know, it took a long time for that to play out. I mean, they realized that there was a problem in 06 and started dropping rates and trying to keep everything under control. Now, they kept saying it wasn't a big problem and that there wasn't a housing crisis, and they tried to paper it over. But the fact that the Fed was was lowering interest rates indicates that they knew there was some kind of problem. But it wasn't until two years later, the fall of 08, that things really began to break in the financial system, and the financial crisis really got going with the failure of, of Lehman. So, you know, it's a slow burn, there are all kinds of things unraveling beneath the surface. If you go back to 2006, 2007, people like Ron Paul and Peter Schiff were warning that the financial crisis was imminent, but it took two years before it really materialized. So, it, 
until everybody realized it. And meanwhile, the mainstream was saying, oh, no, no, you know, we've got some problems, but everything's fine. Don't worry about it. So my point is, it could take a while before we really see whatever event it is that will spark the next meltdown. And I'm convinced that there's going to be some big event, some something will break, and that will precipitate the meltdown. And then I'll be able to say, look, I've been talking about this for two years. Of course, you know, when it does actually happen, at that point, the fire spreads really fast. So, you know, things went into hyperdrive in 08 once people realized that, you know, everything kind of cascades. And then the next thing you know, you're in the Great Recession. But anyway, you know, Powell and company, I think, have backed themselves into a corner. They just don't know it yet. Or probably more accurate to say they haven't admitted to it yet. So here's the key, the ball, if you will. The Fed isn't breaking the economy by raising interest rates. And that's what you'll hear. People will say, well, they need to quit raising rates. They're going to break the economy. No, no, no. It broke the economy when it slashed interest rates to zero and ran quantitative easing. Raising rates just exposes the problems that they created with the decades of money creation. A crash was inevitable from the moment the Fed started playing the easy money game. Economist Daniel LaCalle made a similar point. He summed it up perfectly, I think. In a recent Bloomberg article, he writes, a group of economists voiced their fears that the Federal Reserve's inflation fight may cause an unnecessarily deep downturn. However, the Federal Reserve does not create a downturn due to rate hikes. It creates the foundations of a crisis by unnecessarily lowering rates to negative territory and aggressively increasing its balance sheet. It is the malinvestment and excessive risk-taking fueled by cheap money that leads to a recession. So, I think the best way to understand this, and it's this analogy is not original to me, but I think it's the best analogy. It's to think of the economy as a drug addict. The Fed is the pusher, and the Fed has slowly been cranking down the amount of drugs that it's been giving to the addict. Now, the addict is feeling the pain. It wants more drugs, right? So the addict is hoping against hope that it's going to get a bigger fix soon. And that's why the markets react with glee every time we get bad economic news or good news on the inflation front. The addict is convinced that that means the Fed will go back to the status quo of pushing the drugs. The economy needs the drugs, the easy money, to function and be happy. Without it, it can't function, and it's miserable. So whenever it gets grumpy and miserable and stops functioning properly, typically the Fed just gives it more drugs. The problem with drugs is you need more and more of it to get the high, right? So we have progressively more and more easy money. I mean, you can just look at the, tra at the trajectory. After the dot-com bubble, it was enough to cut rates close to zero. Uh, after uh, the housing crisis and the, the, uh, the Great Recession, they had to go to 0% interest rates and do quantitative easing. And then when we got to the pandemic, they had to go to 0% interest rates and do like four times as much quantitative easing. So it needs more and more drugs. That's the status quo. But on Wednesday, the Fed actually cranked down the drug level even lower. So take away all the rhetoric, all the speculation about how high rates might go and that this is a little bit of a of a slowdown in rate hikes, the bottom line is 
it raised rates 50 basis points. It's basically taking the drug level even lower. No matter what the pusher says, you can't take away an addict's drug without causing pain. And at some point, the addict is going to go into full-blown withdrawal. So when Jerome Powell says you can't know if a recession is coming, I think he's wrong because it's like saying, well, you can't know that the drug addict is going to go into withdrawal if you take away his heroin. Well, yes, he is. That's, That's the way it works. So the question is, what does the Fed do when this happens? How will it respond when it can no longer plausibly deny the economic chaos that it's created? Of course, it'll never admit that it created it. It'll say, it'll make up some excuses. But when when the economic chaos becomes apparent, what does it do? Does it give the addict its drugs? Or does it let the addict die? Now, Powell wants you to believe The Fed is going to hold course and make the addict go through the pain necessary to get cleaned up and hopefully not die. And and that's really, you know, I was talking on a radio show this morning. That's the reason we have recessions, right? Recessions are are really good, especially when you have these boom-bust cycles, because the recession cleanses out the malinvestments. It cleanses out the bad debt. It cleanses out the misallocation of resources. So you really need that. But it's painful. It hurts because it takes time and, and things have to be moved around and people suffer. So that part is bad. But ultimately, the economy will be healthier when you cleanse it through a recession. So Powell wants you to believe that that's what the Fed's going to do. And again, he claimed that the Fed is not going to cut rates in 2023. But, you know, that tune can change very quickly when the addict starts writhing and screaming in pain. And history tells us that the Fed's modus operandi is to go back to rate cuts and QE when the economy tanks. When the addict starts really suffering from the withdrawal, the Fed always comes back through with the drug. It always does what a good pusher does and gets his client the drugs that he needs. So, you know, I think Peter Schiff summed it up perfectly in this tweet. He said, the Fed's only tool is inflation. It's the drug. But since inflation is now the problem, the Fed can only make the problem worse. And and why should we believe it will be different this time around. Why should we believe that the Fed is not going to come in and rescue the economy when it tanks? The markets think it is. The markets don't believe that it's going to be different this time. The Fed funds futures market, If it's, this is the, where people kind of bet on how high interest rates are going to go. Uh, that market doesn't think interest rates are going to go as high as the Fed is saying. So, and you can see it in the, in the way the market reacts. They don't believe it. But the markets do seem to understand that the high interest rate environment is bad news for the economy in general. So on Thursday, we had a big stock market sell-off. Dow was down over 700 points. Um, it responded you know, to Powell's hawkishness. And I think it was interesting watching the gold market. You know, The gold market didn't crash on Wednesday like I thought it would. I thought when we we got this this harsh rhetoric, you know, Powell saying we're not going to cut rates in 2023, I thought we would see gold really sell off, and it didn't. It actually held $1,800 on Wednesday, but then on Thursday it did sell off. Uh, it was trading down in the 1770s uh, on on Thursday evening. It was you know it's about a $30 drop, so it wasn't you know 
it wasn't horrible, but it was significant. Um, but I think the gold market got it more right on Wednesday when it held its ground. If I'm watching the bull, I don't want to sell my gold. And again, I think gold is primarily selling in the paper market. Uh, again, on that radio show I was on, I talked about how a lot of people are buying physical gold and silver. They want an asset with no counterparty risk that they can hold in their hand because they realize that things are going to get bumpy, especially with the dollar. So it's interesting watching how the market plays this. And again, the market tends to not keep its eye on the ball. It tends to be watching you know, the flavor of the day. And it's important to look at that data and to look at the, the, um, the news of the day. And obviously, if you're investing short term, you, you have to watch it really closely. But if you're trying to figure out where we're heading in the long run in the next year or two, you have to keep your eye on that ball. And I think keeping your eye on that ball tells me that I'm going to want to have some gold and silver, not sell it. If you want to have gold and silver or even talk to somebody about it, how precious metals might fit into your investment portfolio, you can do that. Just call a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist at 1-888-GOLD-160, or you can email them, info at shiftgold.com, or you can go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and chat with a precious metals specialist right online, and uh, they'll talk to you about uh, gold and silver and how it can work into your investment strategy. So, Long show today, a lot of Fed talk. Sometimes people criticize me, saying, Mike, this isn't the Friday Fed wrap, it's the Friday gold wrap. Well, I talk about the Fed monetary policy because that's really the thing that's driving the gold market, right? Um, you know, I could talk about technicals and stuff, but really, this is what is driving the markets right now. What is the Fed going to do? So that's why I focus so much time and attention on it. So, anyway. I don't really need to defend myself, I don't guess, but uh, hopefully you enjoy this show. Uh, and if not, you don't have to listen to it. That's the beauty of a podcast, right? There's an off button. Anyway, that's a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of the stories that I've talked about today and a lot more. Uh, you can keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. I'm the managing editor over there. Most of what's there I write uh, along with our our analyst, Tony, who also puts out some great content. If you want to dig into those charts and graphs, those are the articles you really want to look at. Uh, if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Friday Gold Wrap, over at iTunes. Or not, it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on the Google Podcast. We're on YouTube. There's links to all of this stuff on the show notes page, which you will also find at shiftgold.com slash news. Whew. I said a lot of words. So I'm going to sign it off. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Hope you're getting ready for the holiday season. And uh, I'll be back next week to talk to you again.